welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. Coming up next on the Assembly Inclusion podcast. Our education systems in particular are very ableist in how they're constructed and how they're created. And so we have to break those structures down and really remove the barriers for students who learn differently, which is essentially every student. If you think about like the concept of neurodiversity and thinking about the way students learn. In today's episode, I talked to Sarah Sandalius. Sarah is the CEO of the Ability Challenge, which provides a roadmap for schools and districts to improve their service towards students with disabilities. The Ability Challenge uses research-supported initiatives to create more inclusive schools, taking into consideration the unique needs of all learners. This episode is great for any teachers or school admin who are looking to make the jump and finally make their school communities more inclusive for all learners. I had a really great conversation with Sarah about the Ability Challenge and its various efforts and how it's been working in schools so far. So let's dive right in to learn more and dive into today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I'm joined today by Sarah Sandalius, and she is the Chief Executive Officer at the Ability Challenge. So Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So just to start off, would you mind explaining the mission and the vision behind the Ability Challenge? The Ability Challenge seeks to transform how schools serve students with diverse learning needs by building research-driven tools and technology that support meaningful and personalized school improvement. Our mission is to partner with schools and districts to build more inclusive school communities and specifically teams that are working together to meet the unique needs of all learners and specifically focused on students with disabilities. Our vision is that we envision a future where schools and districts are centering students who are most at the margin. So students with disabilities, students who might have other unique needs for learning, and they are doing that in their policies and their practices so that all children are served by their schools in a way that helps them to stay on track to graduate, ready to thrive and empowered to take on the world. And we actually just set a big goal. So by 2045, we want to work with schools that touch a million students with disabilities to make sure that they are really preparing students for life after post-secondary. I like that goal a lot. I was really drawn to your mission just because of my background in education and just, I, I think that's such an important work to have schools become more inclusive communities for everyone. You talked about how you work with the schools, but what are some of the exact services that are provided to get those schools and those districts to become more inclusive places? We focus on school turnaround, school improvement type work. We would love to work with new, but we work with existing schools and districts and actually some state agencies to improve the way that they're serving students with disabilities. So We always start with the data and we typically do a needs assessment where we go into a school or district and we look at everything we can get our hands on. We talk to people, we conduct a couple of surveys. We really try to get a snapshot view of what's happening so that we can then work with the leaders to make some recommendations and really build an improvement plan that's based on 
the specific needs of each context. From there, then we do whatever really the school's need in terms of improvement. So typically that is working with the leadership team to do coaching or support on policy development. Oftentimes it's figuring out what's the best structure for the leadership team and how do we build the skill set of the leadership team to really support inclusive practices. We also work with teachers and educators to build their capacity. We do focus on that special ed, gen ed, collaborative opportunity and really building the relationships between staff and also giving everyone a shared sense of language and a common understanding of what are the things that make authentic inclusion really work for kids. It's all centered around our quality special education framework, which is a framework of research-based competencies that actually transform the way students are served and lead to improved outcomes. So you talked a little bit about the surveys that you had done in the individual schools. I was looking back at your website and you ran a national survey back in 2018. I looked at the white paper on it. It was like opportunity accelerated, exploring the connection between data collection, special education programming and improved outcomes. I wanted to know a little bit about that survey since it was like the national level. How was that survey conducted and what were some of the findings that you found about the relationship between data and special ed programming? Oh, I'm so glad you found the white paper. (laughs) That feels like it was ages ago. I love looking for the data. So I was like, yes, a white paper. (laughs) My background is that I'm a reformed lawyer and I spent almost a decade in New York City public schools working as an administrator and as a lawyer. So sort of back and forth. When I stopped working in the New York City DOE, I started consulting and I saw similar challenges across settings around special education implementation and the default towards sort of looking for compliance and seeking compliance. Then of course, with the legal background, I'm asking the questions like, well, how does this impact kids? And the research says that compliance doesn't really changed the outcomes for kids. That sort of blew my mind and it led me to starting the Ability Challenge. And because I was starting with that lens, I was like, well, I don't really know exactly where the right touch point is in terms of supporting schools. And there are organizations out there, some of whom you may be interviewing for this podcast, that are doing the work. There's not enough, but there are some. And so I really wanted to identify a place where there were gaps in the supports that schools schools could get so that I could then partner with all the other organizations that were doing the work and not recreate what it was that they were already doing. So my mind thought, okay, let's do a survey and let's figure out what's happening. And a lot of the hunches that I'd had over the years around special education improvement was that there's something to the way in which data is being used. Specifically, I had seen a lot of data being collected but not being used. So I was questioning that and I decided, okay, if I'm going to figure out where are the gaps and what's happening for schools, I'm going to do some inquiry into whether my hunches are right. I'm going to do a survey. So I hired a consultant and I worked with her to design a national survey that really looked into what data schools were collecting and what data schools were using and how they were using that data to try and better understand what was going on. We worked super hard on developing the survey and then we put it out there and we got over 800 responses and I think about 530 qualified, meaning they 
filled it out the right way. And we were able to really learn a ton about what's happening in schools. And the hunch was correct. There's a lot of data being collected, both in terms of like special ed data and then non-special ed data, things like academic outcomes and things like that. Some of it's being used to make individual instructional decisions about what kids need, but very little of it was being used in this school-wide programming arena. So thinking about if you have a certain number of students who need a certain service or support, the idea would be that you could use data to then figure out, okay, I'm going to support that that group in this way, right? And that those kinds of decisions weren't really being made, despite the fact that the data was there. Another thing that we learned was that the data that was being used to guide programming decisions was not the data that people said were going to be drivers of school improvement. They said things like school culture, improving collaboration, parent involvement, those are the things that are really going to make our program improve. But then if you look at the data that they're using, they're using compliance data. And so there was a huge disconnect there. The last piece really pulled it all together for me. And it was why we ended up focusing on the collaborative opportunities between staff and other adults that are working with kids is that 70% actually said collaboration was one of the most important components for improvement, but only 35% of our respondents had any kind of formalized collaborative structure in the school. To me, that was a big sign that people, teachers and administrators think is super important for the work. And yet schools are not prioritizing it in their systems. That was like a clincher for me. So I was like, all right, this is the thing that we need to focus on. I could talk about that survey for a long time, but those are like the three big takeaways that we had. I could see the collaboration being the huge piece and then not having enough of it. I just finished my dissertation on co-teachers. So Janet and special ed and their technology usage. But one of the big themes from it was the fact that they don't have the time to collaborate and they need to. So like, yeah, I was focusing on technology integrations and not so much programming, but the same theme was consistent. It was like, well, we want to collaborate on our lesson planning and how we design these assessments digitally and how we integrate technology, but there is no collaboration going on at all. So that seems to be a, a common thread within education that there's just not that built-in opportunity that they're in there needs to be. And there's an expectation that they're doing it, but there's no opportunity. So then you ask the question of like, okay, well then when are they supposed to be doing it? (laughs) Exactly. I was a co-teacher for pretty much every year. I was a special education teacher. And I think once I had an opportunity to like collaborate with my co-teacher, like set time that we both had off and we're like, yes, we can lesson plan together and talk about these students and design effective instruction based on the data and it never happened ever again, but (laughs) what a luxury you're able to plan together. So speaking about the data, so you talked about the national survey and the data that came out of that, but how does the ability challenge help schools individually use their data to help make recommendations for programming or designing programming? I think what's interesting is that hunch that I had originally around schools being able to use more data. My thinking was Well, if we can give them their data, and I'm making quote marks so that you won't be able to hear that, in a more usable or digestible format, they'll use it to do those programming things that we think they should be doing. And so I I ran a couple of tests, and my thought was actually that the solution was going to be some sort of app that gave people data really quickly and easily. We were going to start with the data that they already had. 
what I learned from a few different tests was that actually there's more than just the technical fix of giving people more data or better data or data in a different way. There's also the adaptive support that needs to come along with that in terms of knowing what to do with the data and making sure that the data is the right data to help them make proactive decisions and oftentimes compliance data, which is what they have, is not that helpful for figuring out like, okay, well, what do I need to do tomorrow? So we help schools use data in a couple of different ways. One is by modeling how to use data, right? So we start with a needs assessment and that's really intentional because we want to say, you may have all these hunches or you may know what the issues are that you need to improve in the school, but we have to have data behind it in order to really dig into what it is we want to do. That's creating a situation where we're modeling. You can do this improvement work on your own, but you need to start from a place of looking at what the data is. And I say data very broadly, which is why I had the air quotes, because I think another piece of what we help schools do is understand that data does not just mean the IEP. And it does not just mean proficiency on standardized tests. There's a lot of qualitative, rich data that's out there about students and and from students even that can be used to make effective decisions. We also try and broaden the definition and the understanding of what kinds of data is out there and how it might be used. And then we use an approach of continuous improvement, which is really focused on small and gradual tests of change, but like in an intentional cycle so that you're, you're making a change and then you're figuring out like, okay, if I make this change, this, we think this is going to happen. So you make the change and you gather the data to figure out, is this happening? The thing that you thought was going to happen. And then you analyze at the end of the cycle and you say, did the thing that we thought was going to happen, happen? And if so, do we want to do more of it? And if not, why not? And how do we adjust our change so that we can do that? That's a long way of explaining continuous improvement, but basically the idea is really centered on the use of data to help your improvement initiative stay on track and stay grounded in what's going to be successful in your context. Because again, the way that we traditionally think about school improvement is there's a huge change or a big goal that needs to be achieved. We do all this planning. We turn the switch at the beginning of the school year and we're like, let's go without really thinking about whether it's working, how it's working, how can we refine it, all of those things. So that was a long way of saying that a lot of the ways in which we use data in our improvement is to model for schools how data being used in daily decision-making can be done in a seamless and effective way. I appreciate all the emphasis on the data. I think that's, that's something we hear about in the classroom all the time is the use of data. And the fact that it's a more meaningful way to use the data is something that will appeal to a lot of teachers, the fact that you can use it to make the decisions quickly. And also the qualitative component of it. I think a lot of people think data and they think this is the measures for the IEP goal that I'm doing and this is the concrete number or this is the standardized test score. And the fact that you're also including those other elements of data as well to really give a richer picture is I'm sure very beneficial when they're trying to make these changes. Also two other things about data, which I think we try to underscore quite a bit. 
One is that data is only as effective as the story that you can tell about the data. In that way, it's really empowering, especially when we work with teachers who oftentimes feel disempowered when they come to us because you own the story. The data is there to support the story you want to tell. In some ways, just reframing the way people are thinking about it is really empowering for folks to say, oh, that's why I'm collecting this data. I'm not collecting this data so I can like check the box that you're making me do this thing. And the other piece of it is that there's a real equity connection that that oftentimes motivates people. Real narrative, descriptive data can help you be more equitable in the decisions that you're making. There's really something about having clear processes and using data to support those processes that strikes me as a real opportunity to infuse equity in the work that you're doing. One of the trainings on your website is, I think, the targeted collaboration for impacts training. We had talked a little bit about collaboration before and that your survey found that collaboration was something that teachers really wanted, but didn't really have. But what does that training kind of look like? And what was the rationale for creating it? We started with this idea, give people more data. And we built an app that we were testing right before COVID happened. And I made the call. It's not the right time to be asking educators to test random theories about apps and technology when they were dealing with a national pandemic and the dramatic changes of their entire professional careers and probably personal lives as well. So we took a step back and we said, all right, what are the things that we want educators to be doing? What are the behaviors and the knowledge and the skills that that educators need to really effectively collaborate. I worked with a couple of curriculum developers and we went back to the research and we said, what does the research say about the things that educators need to be doing to really improve the way students are accessing content in the classroom? And that was where we developed the targeted collaboration for impact. And we, we developed the term targeted collaboration because there's a specific type of collaboration that has to do with the way people talk about students and what they need that didn't really have a term and there wasn't really a concept for it. And so we created one and then we created the course around it. It was developed during COVID. So it was developed as a fully online course. The way that it's gotten traction as we've rolled it out is that we do it as a workshop series. Participants typically do an hour or so of self-paced content. And then we come together as a group and we talk through and we do activities together. I think that's worked really well because there's an opportunity to build the relationships as well as not a huge undertaking. It's designed for the gen ed teacher audience. So it's not overly jargony. It doesn't talk a lot about how to write an IEP, but it talks about how to read and implement an IEP. So it takes this new twist on special ed. And we've actually gotten a really good set of feedback from special educators as well. And even people who've been in the industry for a while because it looks at the work with a new lens. It's been really cool and really exciting. The last thing I'll say about that is that we've also worked with schools to offer the training as a unique opportunity for school teams. And then they can customize it and we have like group project and we have different activities that they can do on their own. That's the way I think we really like doing it best is a group of people who work with the same students because then they can really build practice and real life application. 
That makes sense. I was going to say that's a really nice way to be able to immediately make it applicable is to do it with the people that you're collaborating with on the same team. I appreciate the fact that you had said that you targeted toward more of the gen ed teacher population, because I do think that when there's a lot of training related to special education, that it tends to fall in the jargon territory, where if you're not using the terminology day in and day out, it becomes something that isn't as meaningful. So that's great that you kind of looked at it from a different perspective of more of implementation and reading, as opposed to composing and writing. I think that that's something that I'm sure could increase the collaboration then between colleagues, because there's more of an understanding then of different concepts. A big piece of our work is around this team approach to special education and inclusion. You know, if you think about the data and you see that the data around students being in general classrooms is positive in that there's more students who are spending more time in general classrooms. Then you look at teacher training and development and the gen ed teachers are not given the support. Specials teachers are not given the support. They're barely ever give, even given the documents. From my perspective, if I'm that general ed teacher, it's going to be very hard for me to reach out to the special ed teacher and say, how can you help me? Or how can we brainstorm ideas? Because I don't even know what to ask. It's a lot easier to say, hey, special ed teacher, come and take this student or come into my classroom and take this student, which is really inclusion in paperwork, but not really in practice. I've seen a lot of that. A lot of times they're not given the training or the resources to even like, I remember having to print out like sections of IEPs, like just like modification sections and accommodations, but that didn't really do too much for them. So they had that training component of it to build the team because it's supposed to be an IEP team anyway for the individual students. So that's great that they're able to collaborate together. And I noticed you also have two other free courses on your website related to COVID recovery and planning Mm -hmm. with equity. Can you speak to those two courses as well? They came out of work that we had done with the Office of the State Superintendent of Education in DC, which is their state agency, even though they are a city. We ran a community of practice for educators and special ed leaders in particular during COVID. What we had done is... As we were running that community of practice, we were putting the materials that we did with the folks on our online platform, just so in case they missed some of it, they had opportunity to go back and we were trying to model different differentiation strategies and things they could do with their students. And then at the end, we had this idea that we wanted to memorialize what we had learned and share it with other leadership teams in DC. There are two courses. One is called Planning for Accelerated Learning with Diverse Learners in Mind. And that's really about what is specialized instruction and how to prioritize specialized instruction amidst everything else that was happening during COVID and and especially now during COVID recovery. There's a lot in there about identifying what your recovery priorities are and then really staying true to those priorities and thinking through how individual students are gonna access what they need in that context. And then the other one is about managing special education improvement through COVID. And that one is more aligned to what I was talking about with the continuous improvement before. And it's really about using continuous improvement as a strategy, how you identify like what your problem statement is gonna be, How do you pick a solution? And then how do you implement your plan? That one, I mean, is COVID or not COVID, you know, it doesn't really matter. We actually use a lot of those 
materials or adjusted versions of those materials when we work with schools. Those are out there. They're free on the site. You can access them through the blog post. We hope that people are using them. Those are all relevant things that teachers could be using and should be using. Now, I'll make sure to link to the blog post with those in the show notes so people can just take a look right at them. They came out of the DC project, but there's nothing in there that's DC. There might've been a couple of terms that are DC focused, but mostly they're more general. How has access to the different trainings and programs and the resources that you've provided, how has it helped schools and districts so far? What do you consider to be the biggest successes of your work through the Ability Challenge? It all goes back to that framework, the quality special education framework, because what we consider to be success is when we are able to help schools build capacity or systems or processes in those areas. We've really been getting some traction on that front. One of the things that's been really cool is to see, we call it building a culture of collaboration, which is one of the modules in the course, but there's also a leader competency that aligns to it. But it's this idea that there are structural pieces and behavioral pieces around building that culture where people are collaborating with each other and building the mindset of students are going to be able to learn because educators are really working together. And we've seen that really coming out quite intentionally in a lot of the work that we've done with our schools. And that's been really cool. And even where there aren't the structural pieces for collaboration, we've seen a lot of really interesting ways of building collaborative opportunities, either through Google Docs or technology that are getting people closer to that team approach. That's one of the big successes for us. We had an early childhood teacher who came to us who was really broken down by everything. And she was like, oh, another, you know, another consultant, another vendor, and had that approach as we started to work with them. And we, we brought them along the continuous improvement journey. And by the end of this is a two-year project that we're doing with her school. And by the end of the year, this year, which is the end of the first year, she was totally bought in. She was so excited about the work. She was sort of the team leader. And she said to us just a few weeks ago, when we were sort of wrapping up for the year, like, well, what, what are we going to do over the summer? And we had to say like, no, go take your summer. Like (laughs) we'll get back to this in the fall, which was really cool to see the mindset shift from a gen ed teacher who has been doing this for a long time. And I think in terms of the other impacts and successes, we're really trying to build both our scale in terms of the number of schools and the reach that we have, but also the depth that we have in, in different schools. And so we've been trying a lot of different models with what schools need and what our engagements look like. But one of the things that we're really seeing is a change in the way educators feel about their work. And so if you look at the research, educator self-efficacy is a leading indicator for things like improved student outcomes. Being able to really point to improved self-efficacy with the folks that we're working with is really profound when it comes to thinking about how we're going to connect this work to students and to get to our ultimate big goal of making sure that a million students are more more prepared when they graduate. So that's just a couple of things that I think we can point to as really big successes more recently, along with the fact that we've rolled out some really cool tools and some other supports that schools have really responded well to. 
my last question for you is, so just based on your experiences with the Ability Challenge, how has the organization really helped to make school environments more inclusive? You kind of touched on it a little bit throughout this conversation? Well, here's what I'd like to think. And I think to get the real picture, you might want to ask some of the schools that we've worked with. But from my perspective, we are raising awareness about ability being a really key factor in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Oftentimes it's not included in there, which is interesting. Our education systems in particular are very ableist in how they're constructed and how they're created. And so we have to break those structures down and really remove the barriers for students who learn differently, which is essentially every student, if you think about like the concept of neurodiversity and thinking about the way students learn. The research shows that about 90% or 95% of students can perform at rates comparable to their non-disabled peers, but we know that we're like really far behind as a country with like proficiency rates somewhere around eight to nine percent in some places when it comes to early literacy. Graduation rates, you know, there's a huge gap between students with disabilities and gen ed students. And so if I could say how we are making schools and societies more inclusive in like a brief sentence, I would love to be able to say that we're working to change the mindsets around people who are in our schools to understand that inclusion is an everyone issue. It's not a special ed issue. And if we can do that, I would feel really good about the work that we're doing because there's a lot to be done. I love that phrase. I think that's really important. And the mindset is huge. I think that that's been one of the biggest barriers I faced when discussing inclusion has always been just trying to change people's mindsets on what that's supposed to be and that it's a culture of inclusion and not just like a placement in inclusion that's part of it but it has to be a whole school mindset so I really appreciate that your organization is really bringing that to the table and trying to help shift the mindsets to make schools a more inclusive place for different types of learners and I just want to thank you Sarah so much for joining us today and telling us all about the Ability Challenge, and everything that you are doing with the organization. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.